right. And welcome back to the podcast, Everything You Never Needed needed to Know About Movies, Music, and Theater. Uh, I am your host, Matt Garland. And as if the last episode wasn't enough to talk about um, all things having to do with Christmas movies and Christmas time, um, a suggestion came from a friend of mine to talk about another Christmas movie that is played usually around the holidays. And it used to be one that was done as a marathon, I believe, on AMC. I don't believe it's done anymore, but it is shown on TC- TCM and other channels like that, so make sure you look out for it. Um, but that friend is friend of the podcast. She's been on numerous times. I've even lost count how many times she's been on and is a great friend. And this is just another great excuse to be able to talk to her right before things get busy and hectic for the holidays. Um, my good friend Jackie is back. Jackie, how are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well, thanks. And ready for the holidays? Yep. <laughs> um, did all my wrapping a day or two ago. So. Nice. Yeah. yeah. How are you I'm, doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm happy to say that I actually did all my Christmas wrapping uh, this, this, this past day. I, um, I had off from work, so I did Christmas wrapping. And while I did... I watched this movie we're going to talk about. Nice. <laughs> I watched it a week or so ago. Nice. So this movie is, uh, again, uh, Jackie um, suggested it, and it made perfect sense to me. Um, in terms of other movie, Christmas movies that people were waiting for me to talk about, I'll get to them. This, is, this podcast is in its infancy. We're only in our first year, so you know, next couple of years, we'll talk about different things. Um, and Jackie will be back to talk about those as well. But um, tonight, we're going to talk about uh, an old favorite. Um, it's a Wonderful Life. So um, the Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart classic, um, bona fide classic. And uh, one of my favorites, one of my pure favorites of this movie. Um, the message is so wonderful. And it it's so interesting that this is it's a little it's a little dark it's a little bit of a dark exploration you know man versus himself kind of situation which is one of the things i want to get into is talk about the um um protagonist and uh, the the hero's adventure which jackie has discussed before on the show but to track it a little bit in this way and also this plot device of you know what eventually becomes of someone looking at a world that if he didn't live is a plot device that has been used multiple times and it has become a staple, but I can't think of another time it was used within this kind of context before it's a wonderful life. I mean, it kind of feels like this is an original, original um, film. So um, Jackie, you chose this, you reached out to me to talk about it. Um, Tell me about what about this, movie um, touches you so and and speaks to you. Sure. Um, So yeah, this movie has been a favorite of mine. I don't know how many years now. Um, I didn't grow up watching it, but I think probably as like in my late teens, early 20s, watched it. And um, I love just, I mean, there's so many aspects of it that I love. Um, It's a, I, I love the theme of like the value and the impact of the individual um and like the the influence that one person can have on the world on so many different people 
Mm-hmm. Um, the storytelling is just like so like tight and like everything like ties in and becomes relevant at some point. Um, I was like, and granted, I was like drawing down notes as I watched it, um, realizing like, oh, like I forgot these details. Um, it's just, yeah, great characters, great writing. Um, yeah, great themes. Uh, and I kept like being impressed by like just specific scenes and like different uh, plot threads. Out. Um, and yeah, as you said, like you see this kind of device used, I feel like it's almost become kind of a cliche. And I know I've definitely seen it used in like different um, like different like TV shows, Christmas specials and things like that. I'm pretty sure like they're like spoofing off of this. I think that where Most that likely. comes yeah. from. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I definitely want to get into those specifics too, because obviously I don't really want to plot the movie from beginning to end, but I do want to talk about the nuances and the specifics of this movie, um, obviously utilizing those notes that you took and I, I know I took when I watched it recently and kind of looked at it again, which was funny because you'd think a classic like this, I, I watch every year. I don't watch every year. I, I catch, it's one of those movies that you are surfing sometimes and you catch and you can't help but leave on and, and, and watch. Um, the last time I, w- I watched it, actually the last time I watched it straight through was three years ago, right after I directed um, a radio play version of it for Theater Company of Saugus, which we talked about on our episode uh, inside the Sherwood Studios. Um, and this, I will say this movie means a lot more to me than I think I've, I've led on in the past. It's a good story. It's a great, great performances, great characters, great heartwarming. But to me, it does hit a lot of really nice moments and nice things. and. I think in a way, um, it kind of it kind of speaks to me, especially a lot more now, me being um, over 30 now, and I'm gone through not a whole lot of my life, but a good portion of my life where I've felt like George Bailey and I've had these moments and had these feelings. So, you know, it's it all of it is really interesting. And the, I think the older I get, the more I'm able to relate to it even more so um yeah i want to get in again into the to the um nitty-gritty stuff of this but to start off like we always do how did it begin well it was an original story uh called the greatest gift which was written by philip van doren stern which um he had written this kind of um 24 page treatment kind of thing and his family members and family members of that he knew loved it but the studios didn't really care for it um, and didn't really want to do anything with it publishers didn't want anything to do with it and it wasn't until Cary Grant took it to RKO Pictures that they were like oh this is really cool and so they decided they were going to develop it for a vehicle for Grant and this is back in the studio world where a writer could basically sell the story and then the writers kicked off and they're like, okay, we're going to take it from here and we're going to develop it for this particular person. Very similar to what it is now, but they actually gave a damn about good stories, unfortunately. And the writers that touched this screenplay before the writers that accredited, 
is quite interesting. Dalton Trumbo touched it, Clifton Oditz touched it, Mark Colony, uh, Colony uh, touched it. These are all wonderful, wonderful writers. Um, Trumbo being the biggest one, and he, this is pre-McCarthy era, so he was still working very, very hard on a million different things as well. Um, and there were certain things that, you know, um, George Bailey was even more cynical in a couple versions, and there were certain different things that they added, that they fixed. And then it wasn't until Frank Capra came into the picture that he kind of got the ball rolling and, and the story started taking place. Um, he hired uh, Francis Goodrich and Albert uh, Hackett, who are the two people who are credited with the screenplay. Um, they they wrote a couple drafts. Joe Swirling, who um, people might know from uh, Guides and Dolls and How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, um, librettist um, took a stab at it, Michael Wilson, Dorothy Parker, all of them did works on these drafts. And then it was um, Capra who ended up coming in and just redoing everything and just putting everything um, together. And one thing that's kind of interesting with a story that's so sweet and so heartwarming, um, all of the writers that worked with Frank Capra have called him some of the worst things I've ever read in my life. They hated that man. And they were like, he's such a SOB. There's um, Goodrich called him a horrid man. All these weird things that you kind of like, it's amazing how these things actually get made. Um, and there was a dispute of credit because Capra didn't want to credit all these writers that had done it. It's very similar to when we get to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, even though it says written and directed by Steven Spielberg, there were actually like 10 different writers who touched that script and fixed it and wrote things, but didn't get credited. So really interesting in terms of the, uh, the credit and what have you. Um, and so it ended up being credited to Goodridge, to Hackett and to Capra with additional material by Joe Swirling. And they, um, uh, through arbitration, they decided those were the people who did the most to the script. Um, and, uh, there's an old, uh, um, there's an old rumor that, uh, uh, Sincata Falls in New York, which is where Frank Capra grew up, it was the, uh, model for, um, Bedford Falls. Frank Capra has gone back and forth of whether or not this is true. I'm inclined to think that he's just full of full of nonsense, but I, you know, <laughs> everyone has actually said that this was based on Frank Capra's like childhood and, or, you know, where he grew up and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so then came the question on who was going to play the part. Studio obviously wanted Cary Grant. Henry Fonda was thrown out as a, as a lead actor, but the one person that Capra said he wanted was Jimmy Stewart. And for me, I can't imagine anyone else in this role, but Jimmy Stewart. This is not like a re, like Jimmy Stewart just has that aw shucks, you know, cause he's from, I think he's from Montana, I think. And he's got that kind of every man kind of feel, the, the kind of thing that like Tom Hanks has now, but he has that kind of, you know, every man kind of feel, he, he, you feel you can relate to him. And even when he's being a real um, SOB and jerk in the movie, you still feel for him and you can still feel the, that it comes out of frustration and not just him being a complete jerk about things, you know, I mean, um, uh, and he had previously worked with Capra on, you can't take it, 
with you and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which are wonderful, wonderful movies. If no one has seen those, wonderful, wonderful movies. The first time I saw Jimmy Stewart was not in any of these movies. It was actually in uh, with William Powell and Myrna Loy in The Thin Man, uh, after, the, after The Thin Man. He plays the villain in that, which is really interesting to see Jimmy Stewart play a villain, but he can. He really can. But, um, um, so yeah, so I, I I just can't see anyone else playing this but Jimmy Stewart. Uh, Jackie, what do you you know? Obviously, I can imagine you love Jimmy Stewart in this in this role. Yeah, I can't. I mean, I haven't thought really about like who else could play the role. Um, I I think the first thing I saw him in is um, isn't he the main character in The Rear Window by Hitchcock? Hitchcock, yep. Yeah. Um, it took me a while to realize that was the same person, uh, actor. Um, but yeah, I was going to mention You Can't Take It With You because um, I saw that play for the first time just a few years ago. And I realized that all, that has a kind of similar theme to Wonderful Life as far as um, like optimism and like uh, some things are more important than money. Um, and uh, kind of like there's like, I have an optimistic bend to both of them. I realized, oh yeah, and that same actor is in both of them. Well, and it's also also funny because I recently re-watched a, there was a, um, uh, it was live to tape, um, stage version filmed of The Man Who Came to Dinner with Nathan Lane and Gene Smart, which also stems from You Can't Take It With You because Kaufman and Hart wrote You Can't Take It With You and um, the man who came to dinner. So they're in that realm of, of the 1940s um, world. And yeah, I, like I said, I, you can't imagine anyone else looking at, you know, <laughs> Lionel Barrymore and being like, oh, Mr. Potter, Mr. Potter, uh, uh, you're just a scurvy spider in, in this contraption. <laughs> I didn't tell you I could do Jimmy Stewart, but I love, play, I love doing Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes do Jimmy Stewart. Did you ever see um, FIFO Goes West? No. Oh my God! See it because it's it's really he's actually got some really good lines in that in that movie. But um, anyway, so uh, they cast Jimmy Stewart. Now they're looking for his wife, for um, uh, Mary Hatch. And of course, they first looked at Jean Arthur, who was with Jimmy Stewart, and you can't take it with you. And Mr. Smith goes to Washington, but she was about to do um, a show on Broadway. <laughs> and then um, the names are again crazy. Martha Scott, uh, uh, Anne uh, Dorbach, Ginger Rogers, um, Olivia de Havilland. I mean, these are some really great um, leading ladies. Um, but it was um, Donna Reed who won out through everyone. And again, it's another part where you can't imagine anyone else playing. Now, the interesting thing that I personally think about Mary Hatch is that Unfortunately, I feel like Mary gets the bum end of the deal on some of it because it is a great performance that Donna Reed gives, but it feels to me a little one, two-dimensional note. It doesn't feel like it's fully formed as much as it could be. Um, I don't know if you disagree with me on that, but I, I, when I was directing the, the radio play, I kept trying to push, push, and try to expand her feelings her emotions and try to give it more clarity as opposed to you know it, it 
she we know she loves George from the beginning as little kids and then and then she's with someone else and it's weird playing because she's playing it jealous and she's trying to make him jealous and they almost like have an art argument and then they start kissing. I mean, this is in the 1930s and 40s, so movies were a little bit different, you know. Um, but I, one thing I'll never talk about is Gone with the Wind because I hate that movie to the nth degree. I hate oh, really? Oh. <laughs> the the uh, essentially rape scene in that and how horrible Clark Gable is to to her and you know slaps her and says i don't give a damn and all that it just it's too much to me and i hate that movie it's a glorified version of the civil war and you know but anyway um but anyway uh i don't know if you feel the same way what's your feeling towards daughter reed and mary hatch in this particular role in this particular movie it may have changed on viewings um on my latest viewing i thought she was a little more um like complex and a little more fleshed out than I had originally thought. I think the first and maybe second time I saw it, I thought similarly that, yeah, she's just kind of like, she's just there to be the love interest. Um, she doesn't have like much of a personality of her own. Um, just she's there to come through as the devoted wife and mother. Um, but this time, like I was watching like her scenes, uh, especially like as a, teenager and college student and it's like oh she is like she has some spunk and like some like uh I don't know if I call it attitude but like she does have like a playful side with George um yeah I don't like how he comes off in the scene where like she's back from college and he's just like so belligerent and mm. passive aggressive uh <laughs> yeah like I just came here to hello or something like that it's like it it was a weird dynamic and has a weird uh rise and fall in that scene yeah but uh i love her uh during the bank run and then afterwards um yeah that's true fixing up the old house and like uh that's like that's i'm i'm sentimental and romantic so like i think that's like really sweet but um well, and I also think it's absolutely heartbreaking mm -hmm. when when they're in, I'll call it Potterville, the Potterville section of it, and he runs up and tries to talk to her, and you know, he's so desperate, and she is so scared, and you can feel that she doesn't know him, and that's even more heartbreaking, than the fact that they've set up this whole thing. But one thing I will say is you're absolutely right; they do do a very good job of making it if her purpose i mean again i have to put myself back in the mindset of the 1940s that mm -hmm. women didn't have careers they basically were housekeepers and mothers and wives and they didn't you know there was nothing i mean that's a lot of work on its own but there wasn't the added res respect given to them in the office um and so and the fact if they didn't get married they were like a shut-in kind of, um, I forget, uh, old spinster woman in, in a sense that that's what they call her, uh, what Clarence calls her in the Potterville section. So um, I also have to remind myself, but it, the, but they do good, do a good job of setting up this household and, and the fact that they do love each other. She's willing to be in this old house. And that's one thing also that 
is kind of lovely in the in in the arc of it that they introduce this old house this old rickety house she she um they both throw rocks and make wishes and she won't tell him his wish but he of course being george bailey is like oh no i'm going to tell you my wish i want to do this and what for this and she says well i'm not going to tell you because it won't come true and it's really subtle what they do because george bailey's dream of traveling and all that actually never happens but her dream does and it's really an interesting factor of what two people in a relationship that they could want different things, but yet they're, they're, um, they're able to still live a life and be in love and have a family and all that kind of stuff, even though, you know, we'll get to the whole, what, you know, the whole arc of George Bailey, but it's just, it's just very interesting. And Donna Reed does a great job. And I mean, no wonder they gave her a show after this, you know, um, and then we go on to Mr. Potter himself. Now, the list of people who are up for this role or that they consider it is amazing. Uh, Edward Arnold, uh, Charles Bickford, Edward uh, uh, Buckingham, uh, Lewis Callagher, uh, Raymond Massey from um, Abe Lincoln in Illinois. One of, I think, besides Spielberg's Lincoln, one of the greatest Lincoln performances ever. Um, Vincent Price was considered I don't know if I can see that unless it's Tim Burton directing it. But, um, and uh, uh, Lionel Barrymore got the role, but only because he decided to do it over something else. He was going to do A Christmas Carol, uh, which with Gene Lockhart, the classic. And that's how, and he was the one who suggested Reginald Owen to play that role. And it's one of the best Christmas carols I've ever seen. It's one of my favorites, uh, the 1940 uh, Christmas carol, uh, Gene Lockhart, his wife Kathleen, and Reginald Owen. It's a great, great movie. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's so, oh, it's the best. Am I, am I right to assume that Barrymore would have played Scrooge? Yes, yeah. Yeah, because that occurred to me while watching it. Like, this is basically a Scrooge character without a redemption arc. Yeah. And I, it wasn't that he didn't want to play Scrooge. I think he just kind of liked this idea better than to play a Scrooge-like character as opposed to the other one. But yeah, he ended he was up for that role and he didn't go. Um, remind me, I'll send you the link for that one. That's a really good version of A Christmas Carol. Um, but yeah, so uh, Lionel Barrymore, um, wonderful, wonderful actor, uh, grandfather to Drew Barrymore, you know, this- I wondered. Yes, yes, she is. And in fact, Spielberg even knew that when he hired her for E.T. And uh, I think oh, asked questions about him because he had been long gone by then. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, and then what they just did is they just filled in all of these character actors. I mean, if you look at the list of the character actors in this movie and you look at their credits, these are people who have 60, 70 movies at a time, but you don't know their names, but they're just brilliant, brilliant character actors. A lot of them worked with Capra before in You Can't Take It With You and um, Miss Smith Goes to Washington and then further on. I mean, it's amazing that these actors who you don't, who, again, you don't know the names, but you're just like, oh, I know that face from a guest star on I Love Lucy or Dick Van Dyke show or 20 different movies that we grew up with or saw, you know, I mean, I only know Gene Lockhart because I made sure I did remember Gene Lockhart's name and 
he was also in Miracle on 34th Street. And, and uh, Fred Mertz from I Love Lucy was in Miracle on 34th Street. And, you know, there you have a list of people. I mean, the, the, um, the actor, actor list is just absolutely amazing. Um, it, it's just the little parts of little things here and there. Um, and I did want to talk about this for, since we're talking about the smaller character actors. There is a urban legend. I don't know if you know about this urban legend. About Bert and Ernie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading about that because I wanted to know. <laughs> they have gone on record. I've read that they've gone on record and they have said that they did not name it after It's a Wonderful Life. But it's a nice The name. Muppets. You're talking about the Muppets. Muppets. Yeah, the Muppets. <laughs> uh, um, it's a nice little mm-hmm. thing to think about, but obviously it's it's not the case. Um, um, but anyway, so they they you know filmed the movie. Filming was ninety days, which is it seems quick, but a lot of movies do only do like a ninety day shoot, especially with something like this. I mean, you have to remember there's it's a black and white movie. There's not really a lot of special effects. I mean, the only thing they really did was snow inside the studios and, and that type of thing. But, um, you know, and they, they also changed a couple of things while they were doing it. It was a very, a lot of it seemed a little on the fly. It was almost like what happened with Jaws. They were getting pages the day before and they were like, this is what we're going to do tomorrow. Here you go, you know, learn the dialogue and good luck to you. Um, and, uh, so since we're talking about the filming, I want to talk about specific scenes. What, uh, what specific ones stick out in your mind in terms of It's a Wonderful Life or being memorable? I have my own, but I want to talk about yours um, um, first. Uh, a list of like scenes that seem almost like stories within the story. Mm-hmm. Because there are like several segments that seem to have their own kind of miniature arc. Um, even though they play a role in the larger overarching story. Um, so like uh, there's the sequence when uh, George Bailey is a kid, like he's maybe like 12 or 13 and uh, he like covers for the druggist, Mr. Gower. Yeah. Um, and uh, then there's the whole, uh, the graduation of um, his brother and he goes to the graduation yeah. party and uh, the, Jim floor opens up onto the pool and um, that whole sequence. And that's when he's uh, reintroduced to Mary and uh, kicks off that, their relationship sort of uh, saving the building and loans um, at that board meeting. Um, like that whole scene is like almost like a story in itself, even though it was set up. In mm-hmm. um, then uh, the I mentioned the wedding and the bank run. Um, uh, yeah, when that whole scene with like George trying to like rally every, all of his, I don't fully understand the situation, but I think they're like his customers and he's like trying to get them to stick together. Um, it's almost like, a, like in uh, trying to form and like hold out against, uh, or like, no, I, I don't know the terminology. So um, yeah. you're talking about when, um, so basically it's during the the depression that that 
takes place in. And during the depression, basically they were doing runs on the banks and trying to get their money out of the bank. And what was happening is um, essentially banks were closing down because they couldn't have enough money to sustain. And because people were trying to take the money out, they were losing. Banks run on people keeping their money in the bank. So that was kind of what was going on. So in a small encapsulation, Potter was buying every building, every organization, and basically making it his own. And the only one that wasn't, basically what he was doing is he was bailing them all out and saying, I'll give you money, but now you have to pay me back once everything calms down and what have you. And George was saying the opposite of saying that we can't give it our money to Potter because he'll run the town. I want this one establishment to be mine. And what he ends up doing is he doesn't give them their money back. He basically, it's basically decided that if they can stay open till the end of business and they still have some money in their hands, then they can build that money back up and they're not starting from zero. They have at least something in there. And that's why the, he uses, or Mary suggests he uses the money that they were going to take to the thing and just give it's their honeymoon. Like, yeah. It's their honeymoon savings. And that's, yeah, I love that she, yeah. she, uh, she's one who has the idea to offer it. And then um, he hands it out and they're all like figuring out like, okay, what's like the smallest amount that I need. And like, they're, spontaneous kiss from the woman who's like so modest about like how much she needs um yeah um that there's a great that scene is basically kind of reversed at the end because then everyone is giving money to george spoiler alert um <laughs> well what's funny about that scene and something that always gets me is the very first guy is such an a-hole when it comes to i want my money i want the, i have exactly the amount and he thinks when George gives him the exact amount that he asked for, all right, this closes my account. He says, no, your account is still open. This is a loan and you're going to pay me back. All right, next, you know, and what's hilarious is that guy, if you notice at the very end, he is actually one of the first people to put money in the basket for George Bailey. Oh. So he does. It, it's an, you're right about the nuances. There's a lot of nuance yeah. in, in everything. Um, <laughs> There are so many minor characters that just keep coming back and they may not have like exact arcs, but they end up serving a purpose for yep. the story. And I, I loved that. I loved how it felt like a real community um, because you keep seeing the same faces and they keep interacting, overlapping in each other's lives. Yeah. And you're right about the, the druggist scene. I mean, that's so heartbreaking that... I mean, you you do kind of think that the guy is an a-hole, but then you find out why he's he's not in his right mind, and that the greatest thing is that it and it, it's heartbreaking to me when I watch it that when he realizes what he almost did and the fact that George was willing to stand up to him and do what was right that he falls to his knees and is just like, oh, thank you, oh my god, and like he like sobbing, uh, and George and George thinks he's going to hit him again and just he's saying, I won't tell anyone, I won't tell anyone, I won't tell anyone, and, and that's not what he's doing, and it's so heartbreaking, but it builds that um, relationship with Mister Gower, and then you see what he would have become had George not been that good kid. Um, and, uh, I feel like that that was almost like a turning point for George, like sort of like a coming of age, like like yeah. in that moment he kind of went from boy to man. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and it's like it's almost like a moment of it's almost like a father son moment, but it's also sort of like a moment be between equals, like when he realizes yeah. 
Well, the, I don't know if I'm reading it right, but. Well, the ultimate father-son is that beautiful, beautiful scene of him and his father sitting there at the table mm-hmm. right before George is supposed to go off after he, um, I think it's after he graduates college or high school mm-hmm. and he was going to go off and travel. And, you know, the, the old man kind of saying that he, he was hoping George was going to take the building and loan from him, which I think mm-hmm. a lot of fathers who own now being a dad, if I own my own business, <laughs> the first thing I would say is, boy, you're going to take it over and I'm going <laughs> to carry the ropes and all that. Um, and I can and, speak a little to that, my family, um, but you finish first. <laughs> so what I was just going to say is just really quickly is that just beautiful scene of, of George Bailey. And the first time we really hear his intent to do something bigger and that, yes, it's fine if people want to stay around this small town, but he just feels that he needs to get out of this town and do something for himself. And that's his want. Like if this was a musical, that would be his I want Mm -hmm. moment. And, and his father is willing to accept that. And it, it comes this close to being really sappy because they never say, I love you, because fathers and sons never really said that at that time. He just says, you know what, Pop? You're a great guy. And, and, then, and then they have the, they have the servant. Uh, it's the, the only thing I bump on is the, is the servant, the, the servant in quotes. Um, the fact that she's a black woman, that's the only thing I have, I have on that. I know it's, she's not a slave and she's not supposed to be a slave, but it's still subservient. It's a little subservient. I don't think her presence is like wrong for the time. What, what gets me is the way Harry was like harassing her, uh, sexually uh, like, oh that's true you, you yeah. can't it's a little hard to i mean we don't know what their relationship was like she may have been like maybe she helped raise the boys as they were growing up but like yeah. the fact that he's like and like she like friends physically in self-defense is like uh that's what that's what bothers me about uh, her presence that's true that's true okay i, mean, I, I think you, it's fine like it was probably typical for a white family to have a black oh help i don't know if they call them the help uh that decade uh, i mean it makes yeah. sense it makes sense that the help was called that movie was called the help for a reason so i can imagine <laughs> that um okay uh you were going to say something about the um the father-son dynamic and the whole take uh, company taking over just um family businesses uh, i don't know if you know this um do you know bernard's jewelers in salem it's mm-hmm anymore yeah, yeah, yeah I, I knew it i knew it yeah uh-huh. uh my great-grandfather was partners with bernard uh, so my uh my great-grandfather uh raymond tetro senior um like partnered with him and like started that business and my grandfather and his brother uh ran it and then like uh my parents both worked that's actually uh how my parents got to know each other when they were teenagers they worked at Bernard's like in the back room mm-hmm. and when I was little I thought that like my siblings and I and my cousins would probably like uh carry on the business um unfortunately uh they ended up selling it mm-hmm. um, just like things happened in life and they couldn't keep it going yeah but, but there, there is a point like family pride in that and like and like professional pride and like oh yeah like we we know fine jewelry uh, when we see it. All these, we have these like physical things and like I don't know what else, weather skills. Um, 
I'm showing off my piece of jewelry for you. <laughs> uh, actually, I think of it whenever I uh, wrap gifts because my parents taught me how to like wrap uh, boxes and gifts because they learned how to do it a very certain way. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. Presents. Um, yeah. Like um, anyway, that's my little tangent. No, that, that I, that's great. You know, I mean, like I said, I actually do remember the name growing up mm-hmm. and, and all that. Um, yeah, it's um, it was near the PV Essex Museum. Uh-huh. Now I think last time I I was there in that neighborhood, it I think it was a art studio or a gallery yeah. or something. Like, it's still yeah, it's still a gallery. Yeah. I'm like I'm happy about that. I'm happy that it's being used for like something uh, creative. It, it went from uh, art of jewelry to art of um, painting mm-hmm. and sculpture and all that. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and that's so going into what we were talking about in terms of George Bailey and what I was saying before is that it's really funny. Um, there's a great quote um, from, I believe it's from a Beatles tune. It's either from a Beatles or Mark McCartney lyric. And it's um, life is what happens to you when you're busy making, making, uh, um, making other plans or what uh, I've heard people say in AA meetings, um, <laughs> um, you want to make God laugh, make a plan. And <laughs> it's, this, this movie seems like the encapsulation of that in the sense that George Bailey has all these plans. He wants to do this. He wants to do that. He's, he's got all these plans and all that. And, and it never goes his way because things keep getting in the way. And, he, and I think the one thing that we all kind of probably feel for George Bailey is that he feels he needs to do this. You know, his father something happened, you know, his father passes and so he has to take over the business. His brother wants to go off to college and so he gives it to his brother. And he doesn't want to be stuck in this little town and what have you. And it's not, and what's interesting is he never kind of says, I mean, he does, but it's out of frustration, but he never says, I hate this town. It's more like there's more out there that I want to see. And I think everyone has that moment of, do I really want to, be stuck in this, you know, everyone talks about how um, you try to do the best you can of going outside, but at at some point in your life, you do live or you do become living in like a 10 mile radius from where you grew up kind of thing. And I mean, George Bailey just wants to get out of out of Dodge and make something of his life, or he thinks, you know, become a traveler and get all kinds of fame and maybe even riches and maybe he finds artifacts or whatever. Excuse me. Um, And it's interesting that that's, none of that happens, but I think an even better thing happens that he actually inadvertently saves the town and becomes almost a savior to the town. And you don't, again, you don't realize what you're doing in the middle of things. You make, a lot of times you make a a decision here, decision there, decision there, decision here, and you don't know how they're all going to end up. Um, Me personally, I always thought if I wasn't married by the time I was 30, I was actually going to move to New York by the, at when I turned 30 and go to Broadway and try to see, try to make that work, you know, one way or the other. And what I found out literally when I turned 29, um, not only was I married, but I also began to have this um, theater career. And I was like, well, I kind of like it here. I don't need to go 
elsewhere. I kind of, I have colleagues I love to work with. I have friends I love to hang out with and theaters I love to work with yourself and included Jackie. And, you know, I, I couldn't imagine like now giving all that up just to, for a chance or whatever. And so I, I had my own George Bailey moment. I've had many George Bailey moments. As I said before, I am a recovering alcoholic. So I've had moments where I've imagined what it might be like when, if I was not around. And you, everyone goes through that. So this entire movie, even though I think George Bailey is, I think he ends up being like in his 30s or late 30s, early 40s by the time the movie's over, he does go through a kind of like, coming of age the entire thing is a coming of age story of him finding his true meaning in life and his real purpose in life and you know the 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 twists and turns that he goes through are quite amazing and i wanted to also hear from you jackie because you have done research and read books about a hero's journey um and you know the the how classic stories feed into modern stories. This is, this isn't modern. This was made in the forties, but there still seems to be that same kind of like, um, uh, you know, hero's journey into adulthood, hero's journey, fighting against the evil oppressor, you know, Potter and what have you. Um, is there any kind of like anything that you have studied in terms of, what you've read that kind of fits the mold into this story that, you know, into It's a Wonderful Life? I actually hadn't thought of it in terms of that framework. Um, so to clarify, uh, most of what I know about the hero's journey and the heroine's journey, which is slightly different, is um, I've learned from listening to Star Wars podcasts. Um, I did buy the book like by Joseph Campbell. I haven't read it yet. Um, I have Maureen Murdoch's book, The Heroine's Journey. I haven't read it all yet. <laughs> but uh, now that I think about it, I guess I can see pieces um, because you have the, uh, like, the boon of success, which is like a first victory or a minor victory. Um, and it, like, gives the illusion of success. But then that success doesn't last or there is a setback later on. Mm. And... Uh, Uh, parts of the hero's journey that stand out in like most stories are like the descent to the underworld or like a uh, journey to the, the magical realm. Mm -hmm. I guess for this story, that would be like when he is in the alternate reality. Mm. Uh, I thought of it that way before, but that's like the closest thing I can think of. Um, I don't know if there's like, well, I suppose there is a call to adventure, but he doesn't actually go on the adventure that he feels called to. Well, unless maybe the call to adventure is actually the call to be a husband, father, and a businessman or whatever role he has in the building and loans and in the community. Yeah, I mean, it, it's still an adventure that he goes on and, and what he experiences in terms of he actually it is a call because event because it every moment that he's going to leave and leave bed falls something happens that makes him go the different route mm. you know and go yeah towards like, this way yeah he, he tries to reject the call but then yeah. he has to give in to it so yeah yeah 
like map this out and like look at all the steps. Um, I don't like, have them memorized. No, that's okay. I I, um, I I know you've read more about it than than I have. I I kind of mm -hmm. just look at each movie individually, mm -hmm. and I and I mean every movie has that own theme. And I know this one is very much man versus man. You know, because obviously he's fighting against Potter, he's fighting against mm -hmm. society and what have you. But it's also man versus himself. He's fighting himself the entire time because he's mm -hmm. like, I want yeah. to not be doing this. I want to be doing something else. And even when he's married, I almost I feel bad for for Mary Hatch during the whole thing because mm -hmm. he doesn't want that. He doesn't want this like it's so awful for a father to be like yeah. I don't really want to be a dad I want to be going and doing this and that and what have mm -hmm. you and um yeah what, what I found interesting about George Bailey is that like he is not he's not a like saint like character he is oh. not uh <laughs> he is not like he's a friendly guy but he is not like particularly kind or charitable um, he's not like a do-gooder, but he has a strong conscience. I think he probably learned that from his father and like mm. that comes through when he's talking about like what his father tried to do with his life. Um, and so like he has his own, uh, desires and ambition and he tries to put those first. But his conscience keeps them, it, it, it holds him back like because it's, he keeps running into situations where like if you're not here then Potter's gonna Take over, the, take over the town and all these people are going to suffer. Um, I think most of the sacrifices that he makes are for the sake of like the town itself and the people who live there. Oh. Really interesting. It's not even for like the people that he loves most, like his family or uh, that he grew up with or that he forms. Um, really just for the community itself. Yeah, and it's... it's um... It's kind of a story that you don't necessarily hear, hear too much. I mean, for the most part, people are usually out for themselves or for the people who are direct, you know, like if, you know, there was an adversary, you know, you'd fight against the adversary so that you can protect, let's say your brother or something, or I would protect protect Megan or, or you or, or what have you. But there's never once where, and there's not a lot of options, a lot of situations where, a, a character I mean you can say the hero in the classic sense you know Zorro Batman all those kinds of heroes are fighting for the community because they want good to triumph over over evil and I mean this there's a lot of subtlety and a lot of nuances but it's essentially a good versus evil story and it's a reluctant hero a hero who does not want to be hero but he's forced to because, like you said, of the good conscience of the fact that he he is a good and right person and he feels value. And I th and it's also a kind of a very interesting father-son story because I feel like even though you only see the father at the very beginning, his memory and his thing is clouding George and pushing George to keep doing what he's doing. Mm -hmm. um, so much so that isn't there a line during um, either Potterland or before George runs off after the big argument with Mary that his father's name is brought up or something. And, and it's kind of one of those classic, like, you know, you've disappointed your father and that's what forces him. I feel like that's somewhere. I in, don't remember that. 
Yeah, I don't know, but I, I feel, but I feel like that's part of it. That that's why he's so yeah. angry with himself is that he ha he has lashed out to his family. I mean, that scene of him yelling at his entire family. Um, not I, I'm not going to say I didn't experience that in the sense of my childhood, but it's it's scary and it's heartbreaking, and it's mm -hmm. also the fact that he also realizes that he went too far and he's taking his frustrations out on the people who care about him, and that he just he's done, and it's it's heartbreaking, and it's also heartbreaking the fact that he even contemplates suicide and and, and that type of thing, and. Um, and the biggest thing that I will also say is that, um, and I'll say it again at the end to promote things, but if anyone you know anywhere is feeling the, those kinds of feelings that they feel like they have to take their own life, please, 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 there are hotlines to call, there are places to, they can, there's help out there. And, and I mean, George Bailey gets the help from an angel. Not everyone can be so lucky, but everyone should be so lucky to get help from an angel and we haven't actually we haven't talked about clarence yet yeah <laughs> we're talking about all this stuff on the uh physical realm the like normal world but he gets some supernatural intervention uh, in his journey uh clarence is sort of like i suppose yeah i don't know if you'd consider him the mentor in the archetypal sense or uh, like the god or goddess that you meet, not goddess, probably he's not, well, he is a little effeminate, but I don't think he represents the feminine. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a, like, yeah, um, there's this whole, well, <laughs> I love that it's set up from the beginning, like, uh, you hear the voices of all these characters that we will meet later on, and they're all paying for George, and then we see the direct response to that, these angels are talking, and, uh, it's a great device for telling George's life story. Mm. Um, to like show like how he came to this point because it's really been building up throughout his whole life. Yeah. I think even though Clarence doesn't know like what to say, like what the process is in the sense of like, um, you know, they say he's still got, he doesn't have his wings yet. He's still, you know, all this kind of stuff. Like he's a junior saying or whatever they they classify him as uh, angel second class <laughs> thank you um even even though he i think you're right though i think he i think he would be considered the mentor because he has seen george through the entire thing so it's mm -hmm. not necessarily that he knows what to say it's that he's seen his entire life from that moment so he knows exactly what george has gone through and the plot device of saying all right if you want to see what it's like without you here we go let's see what happens and you can judge judge for yourself and then making it impossible for george himself to do anything about it is as you know as well and you feel bad for clarence because he's so innocent he's so like mm -hmm. and he and he when they're when they're drying off in the uh in the uh uh the bridge thing or whatever and he's saying oh yeah i'm an angel and you see the guy going what <laughs> this guy's nuts you know it's really really i mean it's good comedy. or maybe he's terrified because like angels in the bible were terrifying <laughs> um so. probably probably yeah. <laughs> and, like... and you have to also wonder how much George believes, because I don't know if there's any real indication of, of if George 
himself as a Christian. Now thinking yeah, about it. That is interesting. I noticed during the World War II montage, which is a great scene in and of itself, mm-hmm. um, Claire, the, the angels say that like on these two occasions, like D-Day and like Victory Day, uh, the Baileys like prayed and uh, rejoiced. Um, but like that's the only mention I think of them like going to church or having a faith. Um, it's interesting that for a movie that employs the devices of prayer and angelic intervention, there's like no, there are no scenes in a church or involving a faith community. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things cause there's, <coughs> excuse me. There's only one other movie that I know of that has a lot of, allusions to faith and to believing in faith but there's no mention of god or jesus or any kind of entity itself it's <coughs> excuse me um which is um spartacus spartacus is this huh. monolith movie kind of in the realm of like ben-hur and uh, Ten Commandments, but there's no mention of Jesus. There's faith, but there's no mention of of Christ or anything like that. This is another situation like that where you know they're angels, but and I think God is mentioned once by Clarence. Clarence, you know, he asks them, "Well, what about you know God?" And he says, "Oh, he's up there, you know, or whatever." Like it's it's a kind of throwaway line, so it's kind of interesting. And I think at the very end, that's when and the encapsulation of you know, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings, mm-hmm. is the encapsulation of then not only George accepting that he has had a wonderful life, that he, ha- he has this beautiful world and that you don't need money, you just need friends and what have you, but also that he, he I think at that point, he does believe in mm-hmm. something higher than himself, which is probably part of the humility, humility, humility Oh, humility of George Bailey, because he, because in a sense, he does have a bit of an ego through the entire movie, and and the first uh, uh, um, kind of down to earth, uh, uh, the humility he gets is at the very end when he's thanking everyone and he's like, "Merry Christmas," you know, and I'm going to jail. It's totally fine, but <laughs> you know, what have you? I, I like that, and I and I. I remember when, mm-hmm. when we were doing the radio play, I said that to Richie all the time. I kept saying, because Richie De Jesus played, um, played my, my George Bailey. And the first thing I said to him is I said, do you have a huge ego? He says, me or the character? And I said, the character, but you, <laughs> you have a big ego and you don't, get hu- uh, uh, you don't get the humility until the very end of it after you've gone through this whole experience. Because, and that's part of it. And that's another part of the hero's journey of that. He thinks he's this great guy and he's gonna do wonderful things, but it's that he needs to be down to earth and accept what he has around him. And there was one review that I read that complained that he was accepting complacency. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's, I don't think that's quite right. It's not complacent to want a family and to have just a life and all that. It's it's accepting what you've done in your life, the accomplishment, realizing you have accomplished mm-hmm. things and then deciding that you're going to embrace all that and go mm-hmm. forward with the rest of your life. I mean, um, 
Yeah, he basically learns to count his blessings. There you go. Yeah, that, that's kind of the simplest way of putting the just the story. Yeah, um, has all these great things, but he doesn't. He always wants more until he sees like what it would be like if he didn't have everything that he has, and then he learns to appreciate it and like be a good steward of it all. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned just a minute ago, I've read a couple of the reviews. They were not great. <laughs> and wow. these were these were initial reviews. A lot of people complained about it being ham someone called it ham fisted. There was a review saying that the weakest thing about the picture is that it was made. Um, <laughs> someone said that's Capra sentimentality eats itself like a uh, like a like an animal killing its own prey or something like that. Like these were some it was some awful reviews on this. They didn't care for it. And um, but the funny thing is the audiences loved it um, to a certain extent. I mean, actually, um, at the time it was released, it was. Um, it did okay. The biggest, it said the biggest competition it had was Miracle on 34th Street, which instantly was a classic mm-hmm. and heralded and raved. And that's a really, really good movie. The original one is a, such a wonderful movie. I'm not taking anything away from it, but that's tough competition. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening is even though it made some money at the box office, it ended up losing $525,000 of RKO. It was considered a loss and it was considered a flop. Now, $225,000 is a big chunk of change. If you want to think of it in terms of um, in today's world, that's like um, a couple million, millions and millions of dollars. That's like wanting the movie to come out and be like number one at the box office and it being number 42 in this small realm it did not do very well but what ended up happening is people began re-watching it and ended up becoming a christmas classic because people just immediately approached it and like a lot of capra um movies it um it became a rewatchable movie it was seen as a good sentimentality, people wanted to feel good and it was a great feel good movie and a great heartwarming movie. And especially definitely around the time, because this is also post, um, became post World War II that people were really wanting to feel good. And, and so it eventually did get the recognition that it deserved. In 1990, it was put into the Library of Congress um, as a uh, culturally uh, significant film um and right now it's in the top 10 list of the best christmas movies ever um with all the other classics and it again it became a classic um i don't know if you watched it but i remember as a kid it was always on ac uh kind of like how tnt does it now with uh, a marathon entire day of a christmas story it's a wonderful life was over on amc and they would run that for actually 48 hours because I remember turning to it and it's, it's still going and you know and sometimes they actually showed it with no commercials in between it was like the full hour and a half movie then they do a commercial and then they start the next 
showing. So, you know, I have to give it to them at least. And now it's considered, now they re-pulled it and on Rotten Tomato, it is a 94% uh, fresh. So it did finally get the uh, uh, credibility it deserved. And then in terms of the Academy Awards, it was nominated for multiple Academy Awards, um, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Jimmy Stewart, Best Film Editing and Best Sound. And it won none of those. All of it, all of the, those movies, all of um, the wins went to uh, the best years of our lives, which is a good movie, but it's not seen as a classic like this one is. Um, it did get a technical one for uh, develop, development of a new method of stimulating falling snow on motion picture sets. So it got a technical achievement award. So it does have an Academy Award, and that's why <laughs> on the advertisements they say Academy Award-winning movie. It's a wonderful life. <laughs> Technically, <laughs> technicality. technicality. Um, and uh, and it, it you know it it actually won a couple of smaller awards, Young Artist Awards for some for the for the kid who played um, uh, Young George Bailey because he was wonderful in it. Um, and then going into what's happening now is it's very funny. The story itself and the screenplay is actually in the public domain. It's a wonderful life is in public domain. The movie itself is not. So like you couldn't like take the movie and put it up on some pirated set and have it be or a pirated website and it'd be fine you can take the script and do whatever the heck you want with it or the characters or the original story, mm. but, but the movie itself is still protected under um, uh, 20. Copyright. Uh, yes. Copyright. But the story, the original story and the screenplay public domain. And, and that came out, I think it was two years ago that that was officially announced. And right afterwards, all of these announcements of, we're going to do a sequel to It's a Wonderful Life. We're going to do a, this and we're going to do that. And I'm like, oh, God almighty. Why would you need a sequel? It is perfect the way it is. You want to know? It's a contained movie. I heard what the sequel was supposed to be. It was going to focus on uh, Lulu. You mean Zuzu? Oh, Zuzu. <laughs> Zuzu, sorry, I've been up since five thirty. Um, Zuzu, and um, it was going to follow her, and mm. it was going to be her deciding if it's a wonderful life and a return from Clarence. Clarence was going to come back and guide her through her life, and basically a rehash. Here's what's funny, and when we when I get to talking about this movie. Um, there does exist a story treatment for a sequel to Casablanca. Really? It turns out Rick was an FBI informant the whole time and that he knew what he was doing and the whole love story was a concoction of unbelief in that he's... No! Mm -hmm. uh, yep, yep. And in so the that, that does not exist. And in the sequel, uh, he was going to end up with Ilsa. All right, no more. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, and then the other controversy that came out before I get into some of the other versions is um, colorization. It's a Wonderful Life does exist in a colorized mm -hmm. version. I actually watched that version <laughs> this week um, on Amazon Prime. It's on color. I have one thing to say to that, and 
I don't know a nicer way to say it. The colorized version can go to hell. This is a black and white movie. It will always be black and white to me, and my kids will be what my kid will be watching the black and white version of It's a Wonderful Life. I can't see it in color. I don't even want to see it in color. Kudos to you for actually sitting there and watching the colorized version. I, I it it does nothing for me. I can't. <laughs> I mean, I didn't like notice it really like after a while. Like it just I was just watching the story unfold. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, I, I, they weren't I, they weren't particularly brilliant colors. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, there are some movies that are just like visually beautiful and have great color schemes for each scene, each set. Um, yeah. It was like, I don't know, maybe understated. Um, I, I just didn't pay all that much attention to it. See, I I, I noticed those stuff, and I noticed because they colorized a couple of I Love Lucy episodes, and I'm sitting there going, no, 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 I can't do this. Um, so it, the, there have been various versions. They have actually tried to do a musical adaptation of it, which was written by Sheldon Harnick, who was um, one half of the songwriting team of, um, of um, Fiddler on the Roof. And it did get close enough to being staged, but apparently it was terrible. <laughs> um, it's a great source material. I will give it to people wanting to adapt it and do it differently but to me it doesn't sing it's not a musical to to me in terms of my own thinking of things and you know it's it's one of those things where people are like oh this is a great property let's make it into a musical and you know um you know make it sing to now i don't see george bailey singing there's no reason for him to sing mm-hmm. um there is melodrama and there is high emotion but I don't see George Bailey having the, like having it be integral that he sings. I mean, there are moments where he could give like a, a soliloquy like song. to so like give words to the emotions that he's going through. Um, yeah. and there could be like evolving themes because like the, basically like he has the same problem coming up again and again in his life and just, keeps wearing on him. Um, yeah. I see it potentially being something to explore. Um, I don't think it's very, <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's, um, there's an old thing, and I, I've, I've talked to you about it before, um, Jackie, in the sense that I'm a student of Sondheim, and Sondheim talks about the, that um, authors get so entranced with it's a wonderful life the musical and they don't spend enough time sitting there really feeling like why what is integral that allows this to be a musical and if it's something that music doesn't heighten the story and make it into a different medium doesn't make it into anything then all you're doing is gilding the lilies and just you're not making it better. You're not making it more interesting. And um, that's the problem I have with certain, like Elf the Musical or A Christmas Story the Musical or even, you know, that Grinch version that was just done recently. There's no, (laughs) the Grinch doesn't sing. There's no reason for the Grinch to sing. It's the (laughs) same argument I have with Shrek, that there's no reason. You bring that up all the time. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) There's no reason for these characters characters to, characters to, um, to sing yes we talked about 
George's I want moment of, I want to get out of here. I want to do something great. But there's nothing, I mean, he doesn't achieve it. So there's nothing to that I want because and I want song, you watch the entire, the character through the entire life. I mean, if you made a song like I want my life to matter, that would be worth it, but not like, I want to see the world. I want to see this. I want to have things on my suitcase and all that. I mean, hey, if you can do it, more power to you. But I, uh, I have other adaptations personally I want to do <laughs> that I, I don't feel like I want to do. It's a wonderful life. Um, the one thing I will also say is that um, another movie stole very happily from It's a Wonderful Life, which is a movie called Click. Adam Sandler stole from Frank Capra. What's it called? Sorry. Uh, Click. Click. Yeah. Um, it's the movie where Adam Sandler gets a remote control and can fast forward and um, uh. rewind his life and all that stuff. And he says it's a lovingly ripoff version of, of It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. Um, I did find the, um, the synopsis so uh, of... Uh, <laughs> of the sequel that they want to do so it fall uh it follows the angel it fall so oh my god it's to follow the angel of george bailey's daughter zuzu as she teaches bailey's evil grandson how different the world would have been if he had never been born They announced it right after the original movie went into public domain. As of right now, the developmental plans have gone nowhere. So thank God for that. (laughs) Um, So as we wrap up here, because we've been talking for a while, and I don't know if there's anything else we can speak about, but is there anything else that we hadn't spoken about that you had in your notes that you wanted to talk about that we could, um, that we could, chat about any any further uh i just want to state for the record that the depiction of angels is symbolic uh not technically theologically sound um like uh at least like angels in the biblical sense like they don't for one thing they're not dead people they are completely different from human beings like they're they're spirits without bodies basically it's like Mm -hmm like they have to earn their wings or um like that that's just a cute thing (laughs) (laughs) i don't think that phrase existed before the movie but i don't know that for certain um but uh yeah it's just it's a plot device and it's symbolic like it's it is a movie about faith but it's not about like an actual like system of belief or religion The one thing I will say, I don't know, did you, um, weird, weird, weird question, weird tangent. Did you grow up at all watching um, Rocco's Modern Life? No. Okay. Um, There's an episode of Rocco's Modern Life that (laughs) they take. So the last line of the movie, one of the last lines of the movie is, um, you know, daddy says, teacher says, anytime a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. So (laughs) there's an episode where, the cartoon character. I, I won't go into the story of Rocco. Everyone can find it if they want. But there, he um, he gets pulled over because he doesn't have a uh, gas cap on his car. So he has to go through this whole insane hilarity process to get, get it. And he ends up getting it back. 
and he puts it back on his car and so he drives off and everyone's applauding it's like one of those rudy moments of like yeah congratulations and all that and in the background there's a there's a father who's holding his son and his son says daddy teacher says my teacher says every time a gas cap is found an angel gets his wings and his daddy and the father just looks at him and says well your teacher's full of snot (laughs) (laughs) so when i was directing it's a wonderful life and we got to that scene and she says it i I always yelled out and my actors knew it because i made them watch the episode so they got the reference i would usually yell from the back row your teacher's full of snot (laughs) (laughs) not demoralizing to teachers at all but it's just a funny funny like your teacher's wrong and it's it's (laughs) just telling you stupid that's the only thing i have to say about that but um again Uh it's Oh, go ahead. What are you going to say, Jackie? Last thought, because we think about this in terms of the hero's journey for the first time. Um, Like, the hero's journey traditionally ends with um, the hero bringing back something to heal the community, um, like the elixir Mm -hmm. uh, to revive them, or something like that. Um, In this movie, it's almost kind of inverted, uh, because like he has been saving the community all along, but then at the end, like after he's gone to the other world and back, um, the community comes together to save him. That's a really interesting kind of inversion of that step. Yeah, it's and the only um, the only other situation or other movie I can think about that is in that realm of heroes saving the community and the, tw- the twist is the community saves the hero is actually Spider-Man 2, the original Sam Raimi with Tobey Maguire when he is fighting Doc Ock and Doc Ock takes out the train and he holds the train with all of his might and stops the train before it falls into the river or whatever and he's about to collapse because he's so exhausted and he falls forward and the uh, the the crowd around him actually hold him and carry him back into the train to safety and it's the only time i can think of like one of those moments of um you know a, a a hero saying or someone saying to a hero you've been saving people all your life how about someone saves you for a change? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen a lot. And it's one of those, those, one of the only moments I can think of, but that's, yeah. That's another reason why I wanted to have you on for this particular episode. Cause I didn't know if you had tracked hero's journey in this. Cause like I said, I know you know a lot more about it than I do. Um, you also know a lot more about theology than I do. Cause I have, it's been 10 years since I studied theology myself, which is I'm rusty. Um, so yes so um anyone who's who who thinks an angel's going to come down and get his wings by helping you that's not how it works <laughs> um you do have guardians but you don't have angels um but anyway oh we do they, we do have guardian angels but yeah. usually don't take on physical form and uh like show us visions or things no. um not, I'm not a mystic, so that's not my area of expertise. 
I mean, I I personally believe in in ghosts myself. So, and I believe in weird things that have happened to me that I can't explain. And you know, signs have been given. So, you know, if those are works of angels or the big man himself, I'm gonna take it mm-hmm. one way or the other. I you know, mm-hmm. anyway, anyway, any way he wants to give me the message of what I should be doing, I will happily mm-hmm. um, amen to that exactly so um so that's our episode please watch this movie it's a great great mm-hmm. great great movie even more so than just even jackie and i have talked about there's more stuff in there there's there's some funny stuff in there there's some great great lines especially with uncle billy who we didn't really talk about but he's just a funny mm-hmm. character in between and you know funny bits with with all the characters, even Potter has a one or two couple like funny moments and bits and the type of thing when he's, when he's trying to kowtow to George to get him to come over to the dark side. Um, <laughs> um, the, the, sedu- the seduction scene. And also you can also enjoy wonderful moments of It's a Wonderful Life in both Home Alone movies, but in different languages because that's where, because apparently, well, because they go to France in the first movie and it's in French. There's a part of it that's in French. I think it's when uh, George Bailey is yelling at Potter for the last time. And then when they go to Florida in the second one, for some reason it's in Spanish. <laughs> so <laughs> there are different, so it does come up in other movies. Um, but please watch it. It's a great movie, especially around this time. I mean, it's the 22nd, so Christmas is coming around soon. I've watched it this, se- this um, season. I'll probably watch it again, because why not? Um, but it's it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. It has dark moments. There are some really dark moments and moments that um, probably wouldn't have, been, wouldn't have been in, like the whole hitting the kid scene. I don't think they would do that now. That was kind of normal for the time, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, even when I was growing up, you know, to get a smack or a smack in the face, that wasn't that wasn't abnormal. But at that time, but things have changed. But it's a great movie. Wonderful performances all around. Jimmy Stewart's one of his best movies of all time, um, and some great lines. You know, some great things and great writing. So, um, but. Jackie, thank you so much, not only for coming on to the show, but also suggesting this this movie. It's a um, it was a great thing. I hadn't even thought of it. So you, you this was all spearheaded by by Ms. Jackie over here. So, uh, but thank- welcome. Uh, I hope next year we can do the Nativity Story. Yes, I know we we had initially talked about that, and I do. It it actually is in my queue. I haven't watched it yet, but it is in my queue. I actually own it now. I bought it on Amazon just because it was, it was in the uh, like the three ninety nine bin. So I was like, I'm gonna watch it. I should have it. Let me buy it, and I'll just watch it at some point. But yeah, um, Jackie will be back, obviously, and. For people who have who have been, I have been getting a few questions here and there. Jackie will be back for Star Wars. We will be because we keep teasing <laughs> Star Wars. I do know how we're going to cover it. We're going to cover it. Don't worry. We just haven't gotten to it yet, um, but it will be done, and we will. We will be doing the original trilogy, the sequel trilogy, the prequel trilogy. Um, maybe we'll throw in Solo and Rogue One and even The Mandalorian uh, uh, coming up, which um, such a great series if anyone catches it. But uh, if you want to know what's another great series, um, 
the movie critics it's a scripted podcast web series which um, we just released episode 10 episode 11 will actually be released tomorrow and we're coming up to the end of the first season and uh i i think i officially announced the last last uh, episode but we are officially doing a, a season two uh i am currently writing that now i'm actually about to start second drafts and uh hopefully that will be out in uh, uh fall of 2021 or so um so i'm really excited and we're hoping to gain more viewership while in the process so people are excited about season two and uh we got some great people coming up on the on the realm and i've got some plays that are going to be coming out uh, we're going to do some play readings again hopefully jackie um, will come out come along for some of those uh, i'm still figuring out a couple of things couple of things i'm going to do a couple of um, readings of classic scripts that i happen to have so um, hopefully we can talk about that and and get that going and um, hopefully keep theater alive while we're still there's a vaccine coming i know things might be changing but just in case we're still going to keep doing this and keep theater alive and uh, hoping for some, some changes in an upcoming year. But uh, beyond that, Jackie, I hope you, your family, I'll talk to you before then, but I hope you and your family and all your loved ones have a wonderful, 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 wonderful Christmas. Happy new year. Um, it's been, this has been a crazy year. And the fact that I can say from this past year that not only had I worked with you obviously a year or two prior to this, but that we've gotten to know each other even better through you coming up on these podcasts and you've been so welcoming and open about coming on these shows is, it uh, means a lot to me and means that in, and, and also the fact that you've been suggesting ideas and shows, it means a lot to me that you want to be part of this. And, um, and I, I, I definitely thank you. And I definitely, um, love having you on so 2021 jackie will be back don't worry we'll have her back but thank you thank you so so much and uh, uh like i said i hope you and your family have a wonderful wonderful christmas thank you matt same to you um and a wonderful christmas to everyone he, uh, out out there again like i said please the vaccine is happening but please still be smart wear your masks social distance don't be silly, especially when it comes to the holidays. I know everyone misses everyone. I miss my family, but please, 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 let's keep the cases going down. Let's keep restrictions on. I know new restrictions came out today, so please be safe. Um, please take care of yourselves. Please take care of your families and have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful night. Thank you. When you're looking to plan your next Disney World, Disneyland, or Disney Cruise Line vacation, we suggest you reach out to Danielle Elliott at Marvelous Mouse Travels. Danielle is a long, uh, lifelong Disney enthusiast, a former Walt Disney World cast member, and a graduate of the College of Disney Knowledge. When you book with her, your booking includes 100% free concierge-level services, uh, some of which include customizing the perfect Disney vacation package for your, you and your family and your budget, uh, booking those difficult-to-secure fast passes and dining reservations, uh, providing tips and tricks to get out the most of your vacation, and more. Uh, Danielle also monitors Disney promotions to help you save money for those uh, Disney trip veterans still be in control of all the details. Danielle will take care of all your needs so you can have all the fun and truly say Akuna Matata throughout your time at Disney. 
Contact her for your free quote at danielle.elliot at marvelousmousetravels.com or by messenger, messen, messaging her on her Facebook page.